0: Hello, my name's Craig Griffiths And I'm Justin Blackett And welcome to the Halloween 13th episode of Pipcast A podcast for ODPs and the theatre world Well, wow.
1: Halloween. Halloween. It's the 13th edition. There's got to be something into that, I think. Oh, my goodness. Well, welcome back if you're one of our avid listeners and fans of PipCast. It's great to have you back listening into the show. And, of course, if you're brand new to PipCast, then welcome once again.
0: Yep, we've got a great backlog of episodes for you to listen to, uh, including an episode with Tom Mann we did last week, who's an ED practitioner who trained as an ODP, went straight into the uh, emergency department. And we're going to be giving a bit more feedback about that today. On the rest of today's show we're also going to have Sarah Anderson who is an advanced care practitioner in training uh, or advanced clinical practitioner in training. She's going to be talking about how she got that role and what it entails and
1: and hopefully give advice um, for anyone who's looking to go into that kind of role in the future. And um, In the last two weeks since the last episode um, the whole world of operating theatres has been quite made mainstream with regard to the news articles that have been made available and within social media there's been some developments and discussions that we think Pipcast is the right place to continue those conversations uh, a little bit further. Uh, we've also got some news from the AFPP
0: as well as the Operating Theatre Journal that we're going to take a look at today. So we might as well get on with the show.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: So first of all, we're going to have a little chat about the conversation we had uh, with, or Justin had with Tom on the last episode, um, particularly some comments he made regarding the profession. And I think we had a chat afterwards uh, about... Uh, it's comments that we're we're not not used to hearing, hmm. and maybe a, a subject we should address. So we'll play that slight clip for you now, yes. uh, and then we'll have a little chat about the whole interview as well, because it was a fantastic interview. But yep. about that particular subject, which may have struck a chord with some ODPs.
1: Do you have an opportunity to promote to people that you're an ODP? I mean, there's a bit of work that we've discussed uh, that was kind of launched at the Sheffield Hallam University where. Um, That ODPs have evolved into different roles and we've been given different titles, but at the sacrifice of actually calling ourselves an ODP, I mean, how would you think about changing your name to be an ODP specialist or an ODP emergency specialist?
2: Um, The problem is, operating department practitioner, if you look at it quite basically, it's just about theatre, really. Yeah. That's the problem. Um, So, in my role I'm referred to as a senior emergency department practitioner. Yeah. I'm registered with the HCPC as an operating department practitioner. Okay. If people ask what my role is, I have to really explain it in kind of a, a really messed up way because I'm not a nurse, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an ODP anymore. It's all it's a bit of a mismatch really, but in terms of promotion of the role, I'm definitely an advocate for the role and mm. definitely want to promote it. But I think the ODP is a profession or a lot of odps well not a lot of odps some odps i've still got this we're really specialized which we are but they've got the thing of we're better than nurses okay
1: yeah and and and, uh, that, and that in turn endangers us to be uh difficult into integrating with everybody else and, and yeah I, I yeah that's an attitude at times that we do need to shake off because if we're going to be more embracing of working together Um, we don't want history or our own attitudes to hold us back
2: yeah absolutely and nurses you know as horrible as it sounds nurses with training can do the ODP role whereas us even with extra training can't really necessarily do the nursing role
0: so that was Tom uh, whose interview I thought was fantastic you did a great job Justin getting getting the info out of him it was a really good interview how did you find it
1: I mean, it was great to talk to him yeah. really and, and of course the background for the listeners that are not quite sure where this has come from, on social media and, and through emails, we've always been asked um, how do ODPs kind of breach that bubble out of operating theatres, and one of the most attractive roles was working in ED. So quite rightly, uh, Tom, who is a big social media guru, he's very much on there, frequently promoting what he does and the profession of ODPs. Um, It seemed totally right to get him on the show and discuss what he does within his role, uh, and to guide the rest of you, if that was something you wanted to do, you don't have to, you can just be an ODP or be someone actually in theatres that do incredibly well, but uh, how you could follow his career path. So that that was a bit of a background it it was great to talk to him um i was a bit shocked how he kind of steps out of being a student straight into that role yeah i always assumed you would have had to have some kind of at least a year or two years under your belt before you were even considered yeah Uh, he alluded to the fact that they did take a risk he was the first time that they (coughs) ever they they ever felt that that was appropriate in fact since then have actually dropped the years of experience prior uh, uh, applying um yeah, no, it was, a, it, was, it was an interesting interview.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I thought what was really interesting for me wasn't necessarily about his, uh, the ODP going into that role, because I think we fit well. I think it, it's it's a natural kind of area. Us, that and ITU is a natural area for t- us to go into in terms of ward or, or other hospital areas. Yes. Um, the thing I found really interesting is he's, he's clearly been given... He's clearly been invested in by that department. Yeah, yeah. Um, and theatre departments are not known necessarily for investing heavily in their staff in terms of doing all these extra courses. I mean, he was talking about going on all his uh, ALS courses, yeah. ALS and, and and his
1: additional clinical skills. Absolutely, students, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and that's something we don't see in the in the theatre world that perhaps we're maybe not taking advantage of.
1: Yeah, I, I guess as ODPs within theatres, there's no need to apply additional courses because we are in one breath, all singing, all dancing, purpose built healthcare professional that can literally hit the ground running. Mm. Uh, but well, I think we all would see the benefit of approaching those other clinical interventions or the clinical skills that would be helpful yeah. uh, in our job if not from an understanding point of view, but actually to participate in.
0: Yeah, absolutely and even from a maybe going outside and just sp- focusing specifically focusing specifically on theater, um, more and more departments are, are looking at this first assistant role because you know uh, sometimes you, Need uh you know you haven't got a junior doctor to hand because maybe they're being spread quite thinly um maybe you need someone who can put that cannula in put a central line in I know that uh I believe it's Plymouth I have a service where the ODPs and Anesthetic Assistants do the do run the pick line service. Hmm which saves you having two anaesthetists for one case, uh, you can actually run it with an anaesthetist and an ODP and you can run that
1: pick line service without the need of an extra medical professional. I think ultimately, Tom, was a representation of how ODPs have evolved. And, yeah. and I think we, uh, you'll hear about it in in Sarah's interview that I alluded to the fact that no matter how much we feel there are a degree of restraint within our role, actually there is countless evidence that as a profession, we are appearing everywhere. yeah, uh, And we're breaching... Many different areas where normally you wouldn't normally see an ODP uh, providing uh, your care, um, uh, and so he's one of many uh, out, people out there that are doing something slightly different.
0: Yeah. However, uh, back to the clip we just showed. It was uh, disappointing to hear uh, Tom's view, and uh, more than happy for him to come back on and clarify if he needs to. Um, that, uh, in his opinion, while nurses can do a little bit of training, and do whatever, you know, can can do the ODP's job. Uh, I believe he said that nurses, uh, ODPs, no matter how much training they have, will never, will never be able to get to that level uh, of, of nursing care. Uh, and for me, as a professional, it's really quite disappointing to hear that as an opinion from a colleague who has been given his opportunity, not because he's necessarily particularly uh, a special case but because he w- got the skills through his ODP course you know he got the job just as a nurse would have got the job through the skills they gathered through their course and he I imagine is just as good a good practitioner as all of his other nurse background colleagues um, just as some of my nursing colleagues uh, who work in anesthetics who work in scrub who work in recovery are just as good and sometimes better depending on um, you know, depending on the practitioner uh, in the operating theatre.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Craig. I think uh, it, the problem is that as ODPs, we've always been seen as, as second rate, yes. uh, and uh, and we later on we'll talk about some of those examples where that might even yes. happen in modern day world. But uh, ultimately, we know um, uh, as a culture we feel that we're second-rate and, and feel that we're always going to be inferior to some of our nursing colleagues because of the way that we're treated. And so we tend to feel that that's our only outcome. But if we acknowledge that um, and just roll over and sell ourselves short, then we're yeah. never going to be able to continue our profession. Um, I, I know I know people feel our title, our responsibility, our professional title being an operating department practitioner – Yeah sometimes doesn't fit in with regard to like a jigsaw into another department because you're an operating department practitioner while you're working in ed mm-hmm. but you've got to see it as a lot more than that it's not about where you work it's about the skills that you come with exactly uh, and, and so you're, you're right craig i was disappointed that we from another colleague were selling ourselves short that we could actually do anything that we can put our mind to um and like i said it'd be nice for tom to come back on and have a chat with, with us with regard to yeah. that
0: yeah i think you're absolutely right the the, the hang-up because we we're asking this question for following an episode we'll have with helen lowes in the future about her development framework about uh, the specialist odps um who are in advanced roles would they consider changing their title to keep odp in the title so tom would be a, an odp specialist in emergency care uh, sarah herself would be an odp specialist in advanced clinical practice um but keeping that ODP in the title because I think you're right it's not the, the ODP does isn't a uh, uh, isn't just a designation of where you work it is a designation of the skills you have and where you've got to in your practice. There is a reason, and I totally am for nurses having a the, the nursing title in all their roles. Yes, There is, you have scrub nurses, you have anesthetic nurses, you have advanced nurse practitioners. You could call them advanced care practitioners. Mm. Why, why keep nursing there? Why not? Because they have got those skills, they've got to that level through nursing. Um, same with our paramedic colleagues, same with our physiotherapist colleagues that may be going to do um, surgical care practice. Um, I know a couple of those who have done that uh, in orthopedics. Why not be called uh, an advanced physiotherapist in surgical care practice? It shows that the skills that you gained during your training and and whatever you've been doing allowed you to get to this level. Um, And then your specialism itself it, you know, it d- denotes what you're doing.
1: It's going to take time, isn't yes. it? I think, I think it's changing the mindset that ODBs just work in theatres. Yeah. ODBs is a skill set. Um, and like in the old days, nurses only ever worked in hospitals or they yes. only ever worked in a specific frontline care provider. And now, over the years, we acknowledge that when you say you're a nurse educator, you're still promoting you're a nurse, but predominantly yeah, teaching mm-hmm. and, and lecturing and yeah. providing support to, to learners. Um uh, uh, and that mindset needs to change uh, yeah. for ODPs, and so for no longer do we say ODP, oh, you just work in theatres. It needs to be uh, a lot more, a bit, a, a wider range of exploring your skills. I think. Yeah. Um. But yes, well, uh, it's going to be a big culture change. Yeah. And we're here at PipCost are going to champion absolutely. All, uh,
0: and I think our call to arms is is not just to promote ODPs, but to promote that interprofessional. It is not an us versus them. Mm. It is we are us. The yep. nurses, our, our, our nursing colleagues, our nursing assistant colleagues, our physiotherapy, all of our allied health professional colleagues, are all under one banner, and we should be promoting all of us to if we have the right skills to get the jobs that we deserve. Um, on that subject, uh, we were really taken aback by the the really forward thinking department that Tom is part of. Yeah, um, as uh, you know, and I looked on the. Uh, Birmingham uh, uh, Trust advert and it has got on there specifically uh, accident emergency ODPs and nurses that is in ODPs are in the title if you search for ODPs and accident emergency it is the only job that comes up but it does come up Um, so it had me thinking and I said that in in the last episode with Tom that how how many other emergency departments would consider an ODP as part of uh, as part of the job, so before we recorded this episode, uh, we did a little search in our in our local area, kind of a fifty mile radius that you can do on NHS jobs, uh, and there were nineteen jobs that came up in our search, of which uh, I think it was five or six were um, appropriate for kind of an ODP with you know, a couple of years of experience probably to apply for. Yeah. Uh, we've looked at the job descriptions. There was nothing untoward that an ODP couldn't do. There was no skills that an ODP couldn't have aside from uh, one job advert had the patient group directive as part of the development of a practitioner. And we got some interesting results,
1: didn't we? Yeah. I mean, on the back end of the fact that we were so enthusiastic that we knew that ODPs could easily fit into an emergency department. Um, it it was a real big driver for us to reach out and that's what we did and we had some really good replies
0: yeah so um uh we had a reply from uh, the north bristol trust um who were very kind and said they would absolutely get back to us um they weren't sure they hadn't heard of odp's applying before um but they certainly weren't shutting the door um We also spoke to uh, Swindon uh, NHS Trust. They were fantastic, actually. They were very honest and said that they hadn't heard Uh, they weren't familiar with what the ODP role was Uh, once I'd explained the kind of skills that we had basically said about what we can and can't do in terms of PDDs prescriptions and and giving drugs the person in charge of recruitment there was really really actually um, forward-thinking and and actually said that's fantastic
1: was asking for kind of CVs and and, and going forward and and every time uh, we spoke to them we used the opportunity to promote that Birmingham was yeah employing ODPs and, and so they you can imagine, metaphorically, their ears pricked up because yeah. they saw that actually they might have been missing out a trick. So if anything, we've planted the seed in a lot of these places. Yeah,
0: so that was, that was really fantastic. Um, uh, Salisbury, unfortunately, again, the person in charge of recruitment wasn't there, so they were going to get back to us. Um, and then we were really staggered. We called the uh, Royal United NHS Trust in Bath. Again, same basically the same advert as everyone else, you yeah. know, looking for maybe a year's experience. Um, doesn't say specific what experience, it just said a year's of experience. Um, and so we gave them a call. Um, and the reply we got was staggering. Uh, we were told, uh, and I had to clarify this, Justin will tell <laughs> my jaw dropped, I had to repeat it several times. You to should have person. seen his face. Um, <laughs> that. Uh, the reason they did not look at ODPs or paramedics was because they have enough nurses that apply to the job that they would not consider uh, another profession. Uh, and so I had to clarify, does that mean to say that it, it's a tiered system? That, in fact, unless you don't get enough nurses, you uh, that's the only case that you would actually... Uh, even have a look at an ODP because I know in terms of um, theatres if you get a fantastically experienced nurse uh, who's coming along whether they've worked in ITU or critical care and they're coming along and maybe yes they need extra training they need to do an anaesthetic course if they're going to anaesthetics or they're coming into recovery and just need to see how theatres works I know that those colleagues are just as valuable as a newly qualified or or perhaps someone uh, who's an ODP who maybe doesn't have those skills or doesn't have the uh, skills that they can give to that role. Um, And therefore, we wouldn't just say, actually, we've got enough ODPs applying for this job. There is no need to apply. Mm. Um, So we are putting a shout out as a little uh, name and shame there because that was staggering.
1: Yes, That was truly staggering. Uh, And if we've got any listeners that that work for that trust within Bath, then see what you can do to try and change that mindset. I mean, it was alarming, and it it may be due to the fact that they don't understand all the usefulness of ODPs and ED like we have appreciated, and I think we all can as listeners. That The only time that should look at ODPs and other healthcare professionals would be that if she had a lack of applicants that were the the bread and butter of what they assume would only ever reply which is your staff nurse yeah um so that was interesting yeah um and and, and but the majority i would say is positive and actually if yeah. you are interested
0: in a role and you have the skills um through your practice through extra courses that you've done to apply for that role then call the person who's who's leading that recruitment and ask them that's what we did we got some really positive feedback from people when we said these are our skills um like i said swindon were really happy for us to kind of get cvs in and and Mm -hmm. and apply if we if we wanted to do so and proceed and you know others others they were all looking for practitioners and actually it might be an untapped market that they might not have heard of like um they at swindon who didn't know um what an odp was or rather what skill set an odp has if you can take the time to do that and to explain yourself and to to explain your role and the skills you have, you will be more likely to get that job that you want.
1: So there we are. ODPs in ED, I think we can put that on to bed. Uh, If you've got anything else you want to talk to us about that, then please do. Uh, And if you are in other NHS trusts that do employ ODPs in ED, please get in contact with us.
0: And you can get in contact with us in several ways. You can contact our Twitter handle, which is at ODP Pipcast. You can go to our Facebook page. If you search for Pipcast on Facebook, we are the first one that comes up there. Uh, Or you can email us, which is um, odppipcast at gmail.com. You can use the same email address to get in contact with us on Skype. Leave us a phone
1: message. We yeah. love hearing from you, so please do. So Absolutely. there we are, ODPs and ED.
3: Hi, I'm ODP, Andrew McPhee, and this is Pipcast.
0: Speaking about social media and the news, uh, we've got a bit of news out. Uh, should we start with the H C P C
1: yeah, so uh, in uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, HCPC put out a tweet and uh, I put it on their Facebook promoting the fact that they've uh, gotten the bandwagon of podcasts. Boom. Uh, they've been known to do a little bit before, but this is the first time they've kind of promoted the word podcast. Yeah. Uh, advising all their registrants about how to be on social media clear guidance on on how to be an odp a paramedical or the multitude of different uh, hcpcs that are on the register about how to um, to behave on social media yeah like we do yeah really I, I, I professionally you... <laughs> <laughs> we certainly do try yeah assaulting uh, a... people with a microphone at conferences that's i think that's, that's how you do it and I think, you know, I mean, you just have to scratch the surface and there have been many people that have been um, caught short, I think. Yes. I think it's the word we're going to use there, where they might have been slightly inappropriate on social media, uh, including our uh, some of our ministers uh, in Parliament <laughs> uh, have also called themselves into that situation. But I think it's quite nice. If you're brand new to social media and you want to know how to promote what you do at work and about your profession, which is really what we're all about, yeah. um, uh, go there, go to HCPC website. Um, we'll put that into the show notes. Uh, yeah. And there's a really lovely podcast there um, that gives you guidance on how to uh, be on social media now with regards to
0: social media mm. and odp's yeah odp got a fantastic rush of mentions uh, a couple of weeks ago yeah um and it was fan- it was brilliant we were really we were really surprised this hashtag was going on uh, going about proud to be odp we were really excited thinking that that uh, you know it all kicked off until we realized not quite the ODP we were thinking.
1: Yeah, so we suddenly discovered that, with deep within government, because that's predominantly where they benchmark yeah. themselves, there is a group of people that call themselves Operational Delivery Professionals. That they have been around probably about a year or so, yeah, uh, and they have a lot of branding that they've chosen to abbreviate themselves as ODP, yeah, and own the hashtag Proud to be ODP.
0: So it seems that they were either at a conference or something uh, and promoting their, I guess, their new profession. Yeah. Um, They also have an ODP newsletter.
1: Yeah, the newsletter for uh, operational delivery professionals across the government, the largest profession in the civil service.
0: Absolutely. Um, Isn't that fantastic, guys? Uh, Yeah. Uh, This has obviously... um, Concerns have been raised and been raised to us uh, through social media from various different professionals, all we will say is yes. Uh, operation operating part department practitioner is a is a protected title. I'm not sure about the abbreviation, but I would assume that that would come into it.
1: Yeah, I think um, I'm pretty confident. If you go on HCPC website, an accepted abbreviation for ODP is ODP. Yeah. Um, so we yes.
0: would say to contact your local MP as well as the HCPC if you um, want to complain about the use of uh the ODP title um and yeah people power gets involved if it, if it, if we're going to be promoting our profession as the only ODPs on social media um then we need to get this started. So oh, well, We have contacted HCPC yeah.
1: and we are awaiting a uh, comment on our um, uh, our concern that yeah. that title was being used. And I know on social media, uh, people who do listen to Pipcast have also uh, emailed them yeah. uh, requesting some clarification on that. So once we hear more, we'll let you know more.
3: This is
0: Pipcast. Onto the AFPP. Uh, they've been running some focus groups uh, for ODPs.
1: Yeah, so two of them uh, appeared on our radar. Yeah. Um, looking into them, they predominantly were in daytime hours. Yep. Um, and so both Craig and I... Because guess what? We've got jobs as well. Yeah. We were unable to free ourselves up. Uh, so we were unable to go as individuals or even as Pipcast. Yeah. Um, but we... Heard that somebody that's very close to us from the Pipcast world was going. Yeah, uh, I think we mentioned in a previous Our episode. Our very own Nanny McPhee. Nanny McPhee. Angela McPhee <laughs> went along uh, with the idea that she would be able to grab some audio there yeah, uh, just to get a bit of a taster of what these focus groups is all about because anything to do with ODPs, we are right there. We want to hear about it. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, uh, the AFPP weren't too keen on us recording um, from these focus groups partly because they uh, want to... Uh, do some work on that themselves um so watch their space for that um hopefully they'll get something out to us about what's going on in the focus
1: groups yeah. and how that's developing uh, going forward it's really refreshing to see an organization that is taking some responsibility over us because it's long overdue
0: absolutely uh, and,
1: and uh, yeah so we'll see what comes of that having said that mm. <laughs> Uh, there is also work
0: on the patient group directives. Yes, um, and we will definitely put the link to this uh, patient group directive project um, that's being undertaken. I believe with the CODP, AFPP, and the uh, allied health professionals uh, group. In finding out about the AFPP's involvement uh, in this, we came across uh, the post on their on their website, yeah. which says very nicely, very clearly, and succinctly. Uh, the title is the ex- exploration of the use of patient group directives by insert profession. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now I'm not sure who is in charge of comms in the <laughs> FPP. Maybe it's because they're doing it for multiple profession- professions. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm I, I, don't sure. I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure. Um, but certainly. By insert profession is probably not the way to go <laughs> when you're representing particular professions.
1: So if you're listening to us AFPP, uh, show us that you're listening and change that to, to ODP. Yeah. And of course, like Wildfire, you type that in now, and lots of, like the Operating Theatre Journal, yes. for example, has uh, literally cut and pasted that information onto their website. Uh, and of course, they've now stuck with the term insert profession. Yeah. I'm imagining by the where it says insert profession, the key is... Insert profession. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there you are. However, the, the good thing about that yes. is that, that there is some work um, being promoted to us all, not just behind closed doors, that is going to ensure that the right people are approaching the right bodies, yeah, the stakeholders yeah. Um, that have an avid interest, which of course is the public, is our patients, that ODPs have the ability to um, use PGDs to the patient's advantage. And of course it's also good for us as well because we feel like the second right profession in theatres when we can't and we've all been there and I certainly do within my role and I know you do as well Craig um, yeah. so it looks like AFPP uh, and of course like I said the other organisations they are working together um, and again we'll put the link for more information about what that is involving and the information about that in our show notes absolutely uh, talking about how we got to this source uh, the Operating Theatre
0: Journal a mm. journal that we have neglected and I'm sorry to say we've neglected it um you will see it in your coffee rooms Throughout the country, it's free. Uh, it usually has uh, some nice products to buy as well as some interesting articles to read. Um, we just want to give a shout-out to the Operating Theatre Journal itself. It is a good resource. Yeah. It is one of the only resources that we have widely... Well, it's the only resource that everyone has access to
1: yes. widely in, in, in operating theatres. guaranteed um, that when there's an edition, you get several copies to the, the recovery manager, absolutely. the anaesthetic manager. Uh, and it is such... A lovely bit of journalism, I think. There's some great stuff in there. Uh, and a big thanks to the guys behind the scenes of the operating theatre journal that yep. uh, from a Twitter and a Facebook point of view have always liked and shared our uh,
0: comments absolutely um, and, and this month we've got uh, one that you're relatively interested in in terms yeah. of uh, uh, getting the public to get in, into cardiac arrest scenarios or not get into but into deal with cardiac arrest scenarios yeah
1: so it's titled people are reluctant to use public uh, defibrillators to treat cardiac Arrest," and it's a study suggests members of the public don't know Uh, what they are, how to use them, or where to find them. And it also suggests organisations don't feel that they should have one or feel unable to obtain one, which is really alarming because statistically we know that if you have a cardiac arrest and you're in a shockable rhythm, which is a a common rhythm for us uh, adults, not the little people, but uh, if you are in a shockable rhythm and you're defibrillated within the first three minutes of that initial cardiac arrest, then your chances of survival can be up to around 80%. Uh, And the current data within the United Kingdom indicates that you have only around 5 to 8% chance of survival if you have a pre-hospital cardiac arrest, and it's no real better across the European Union either. So an interesting article on that, Uh, and they're running a lovely feature. It's a four-part series on quality improvements in theatres, Uh, Last week they talked about theatre training and this week they're talking about staffing pressures uh, and there's some real good information there. What are
0: staffing pressures? I have no idea. (laughs) Is everyone not fully staffed in their theatres? No? Uh,
1: Wake up. Wake up. (laughs) Have some coffee. Ah. (laughs) So do you know what? There's uh, some great information in there that you can go to uh, and every month there's information in there and and, and look out shortly because there will be a fantastic promo for Pipcast. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> um,
0: they've also got a website that you can go to. We'll link that in the show notes. It's got all their articles. It's got a list of job vacancies as well, as well as study days and seminars. Um, that's all really useful for CPD and moving jobs and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, absolutely, Operating Theatre Journal. Thank you very much for your uh, work, and uh, we'll definitely be mentioning them in the future.
3: We're, We're Sheffield students, and this is Pitcast. <sighs>
1: So, what's been in the news, Craig? There's been some. Well, what's not been in the news uh, at the
0: moment? Um, In terms of uh, hospitals, we have had a couple of articles that we've picked up on. uh, The first one being about the safety of private hospitals. Now, I know ODPs lots of ODPs who are now working in private hospitals because uh, theatre services are expanding into the private sector. Um, So a lot of our colleagues are are now working in in private healthcare or certainly if you're an agency you're often doing uh, private healthcare work as well. Um, It's concerning to hear that safety is being questioned in these hospitals um, particularly when they're taking ever more increasingly unwell patients.
1: Yeah, so this is on the back end of a BBC Panorama show, wasn't it? That they explored the fact that almost sixty percent um, of kind of private hospitals have a, a been rated good or outstanding, but there's no, uh, you know, comment from private healthcare providers of where this has been a balanced account for the sector, or do they feel they need to be more regulated? Uh, it's, it's, it was a difficult. One. I watched the show. It yeah. was an interesting show. I think uh, a couple of the big stakeholders in private healthcare took a few blows, and and for quite right. The correct reasons because we all like to think we're all of a good character but yeah actually there are some baddies out there and, and and within all the different levels of professionalism that we live in through surgeons and through odps you know, nursing auxiliaries that there are some baddies out there uh, and and sometimes regulation of those people need to be tightened I worked briefly for Spire Healthcare uh, and I felt that was in a safe environment and I felt that where there was an incident or where there was a potential incident there was enough support mechanisms in place to limit and reduce but I guess due to the lack of formal regulation in the entire private healthcare is a great reason to start talking about how can government uh, and respective organizations regulate them further.
0: Yeah, I know uh, from experience I've 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 worked in a private uh, healthcare theatre uh, setting and it was really good the work was good it was very safe and efficient Uh, and then they started taking on more and more work uh, Mm -hmm. perhaps got a bit too greedy for their uh, their eyes were a bit bigger than their bellies and all of a sudden the same pressures that we had in the NHS started coming to them and those same safety concerns uh, were, were, were there except they didn't have the emergency care on site to deal with. It then turned what was a nice, safe environment into a potentially dangerous environment. The thing I would say to any practitioner who has concerns is you must raise them. It's our professional responsibility yes. to raise these concerns. Um, there is a lot of work in terms of whistleblowing and protect, protecting whistleblowers. Um, and I think we, we owe it to our patients. If you're in an environment that you wouldn't let your family uh, or yourself... Uh, be operated on or, or, or be cared for in, um, then you need to think about why that is and, and maybe raise some concerns at a higher level. Yeah, absolutely.
1: and uh, It's always difficult in private healthcare isn't it because there's there's too many other influences. Yeah. Um, it's a great environment to showcase new products yeah. uh, and of course with the suitable profit margin indicated with that then sometimes the information delivered might be a little bit skew, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you make your own decision. We'll um, insert the link for the panorama show in our show notes, yeah. so you can spend the next you know half an hour watching that. Um, and please get back to us, comment to us if you are an ODP or uh, a member of the operating theatre world that works within private healthcare, uh, and you want to comment on that, then please let us know. And if we need to anonymise uh, your name, yes. or, uh, then we we can. We are happy to do that more Absolutely. than we do that but we want to hear from you.
0: Uh, the, the, the next story was from last week um, and it's a subject that's actually quite close to my heart I did a project on it uh, when I was a student and that is uh, operating theatres are wasting two hours a day so it's, it's we all know the, the problems with theatre efficiency um, but the, the main tagline for the story is NHS hospitals could carry out 280,000 more non-emergency operations a year by organising operating theatre schedules better Uh, a a study suggests. Uh, Now, I don't know if anyone is familiar with this but you can actually search for, um, uh, it's a a site called Behind the Headlines, it's run by NHS Choices and what they do is they take some of the stories that are in the media uh, and they actually uh, will show you the actual papers that have uh, produced this evidence and actually we'll break it down to say what is actually what what is what is the actual evidence and what is perhaps being spun by the media unfortunately for this story we cannot see the data that these people have 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 gained i know from my project that i did i could have argued that we we were going to gain uh, you know 2 hours of theater time a day but actually that's an average So if you're gaining four hours of time one day and 15 minutes another day, you're not necessarily doing two lots of operations. No. Um, So while, and I think that's important to note because while we can be more efficient in certain ways, yes, if we're only gaining 15 minutes here and there, 15 minutes isn't going to get you an extra operation. Um, and you cannot predict sometimes the issues that happen in theater if you if your surgeon accidentally uh, hits a vessel or perhaps there's a he- adhesiolysis or adhesions that they did not know uh, were there previously that they, those are unexpected issues that, that can happen often.
1: yeah you know, I spoke to some of my managers within the trust that I work in about this time and you know there's too many other influences with regard to starting an operating list on time that theatres are not just the key thing to blame I mean if you've got a hospital full of patients and you've not got that wriggle room to admit a patient for a procedure there's going to be a delay yeah. and that's not due to the lack of efficiency of the theatre staff or the system it's the hospital itself uh, and this, these are just little cracks that yeah. are presenting itself that theatres are taking a bit of a knock for um, uh, it's it, it, it's a great article it kind of touches the surface with regards to this massive a bit of time but uh, I, I think it doesn't explore some of the influences to that time itself uh, and they're just fixated on time and income yeah. that could have been benefited from that time itself
0: exactly and when you're churning through patients we all know what suffers the most and that's patient care yeah
1: absolutely, um, absolutely. so it's an interesting one um, let us know what you think I mean, are you literally sitting around two hours before you start a list? I don't think so. Um, But tell me, what is your biggest frustration? What stops you from being efficient when you've got your team brief? You've done everything you possibly can to ensure that you can deliver the very best care for your patients. And then something stops it. What is that? Tell us.
0: Yeah. Uh, We've seen here that in the article as well, it references Croydon University Hospital. You said they they overhauled the way they did their operations and they were able to do 1,200 more cases a year, which was an extra income of 2 million. If you have a case or if you have a department that has maybe changed the way you do theatres and it has led to an improvement in efficiency that would be great. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear how you did it. Um, And particularly going forward, um, we would love to see if we can put that out to the wider theatre
1: community to see how it applies across the board. And it's interesting, isn't it, money associated with cases. I mean, that's not always the case, isn't it? You could do one case and uh, get that kind of money or you uh, might have to do several. So is it interesting when they just latch on to we've done more cases, so we've earned more money. Absolutely. Uh, What were those cases?
0: difference between doing... Ten tons- tonsillectomies versus one scoliosis repair. Uh,
1: yes, we all know what we mean there. So, yeah, tell us what you think about that, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you.
0: So coming up, we now have a uh, chat that we have with Sarah Anderson, who's the operation, operating department practitioner who's uh, doing a course in advanced clinical practice, um, hoping to become an advanced clinical practitioner in orthopaedics. Um, so we're going to listen to her uh, talk with Justin now, and then we'll give a little bit of reaction.
1: So, welcome back. Um, As many of you listeners are aware, we like to talk to ODPs in the community of the operating department world Uh, that really enjoy their job but have decided to take their qualification and do something more with it. Now we know a lot of our listeners are very happy in doing their day-to-day job within the three disciplines that is anaesthetics, uh, recovery and scrub. But there are a growing army of ODPs out there that have taken their qualification and decided to do a little bit more. Uh, And we've got one of those people with us today. Uh, Her name is Sarah. Hello Sarah, how are you? Hi, just
3: uh, I'm good, thank
1: you. first of all, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to Uh, um, spend some time with us uh, and record some audio about your story so Sarah tell us a little bit about yourself so what what are you doing now you were you you are an ODP but now you're doing something a little bit different
3: yeah at the moment I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner or ACP for short in trauma and orthopedics so I'm based on the orthopedic trauma ward working alongside a junior doctor as part of the medical team yeah it's
1: uh, it's good. It sounds like an amazing job. My goodness me. So first of all ODPs on the wards whatever next eh but so uh an advanced clinical practitioner so what is that all about what does that involve
3: So it's a three year training program you have to have experience and uh a degree to get onto the masters course okay. and then uh, the masters is 3 years part time and alongside that we have to do clinical competencies as well so i've got a book of core competencies and also a book of speciality specific competencies that relate to orthopedics in particular so we have to complete those within within three years and at the end of that then we're qualified advanced practitioners
1: okay so the acps they also specialize in other areas
3: yeah we've got i think we've got 24 in total at the moment where i work and they're in the emergency department uh cardiothoracics on the wards over there um some in neurosurgery as well and from different backgrounds too so we've got odps paramedics and nurses
1: wow what a multitude of different uh Professions in one room. So 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 let's let's start the journey. I mean, when did you become an ODP?
3: So I started training in two thousand and one. Okay. Did the MVQ in operating department practice yeah. alongside the diploma. Ah. So, that was just, so I finished just at the time we got registration in two thousand and three. Okay. Um yeah, so I worked in anaesthetics for a number of years
1: okay, and, and then so, moved
3: in moved into recovery.
1: Uh, right, so anaesthetics and recovery were the kind of two disciplines that you decided to go into. Um, yeah. So how did you find the NVQ and the diploma work together? I mean, I imagine that was quite a lot of work to do at one time.
3: Yeah, the way it worked was the um, diploma was sort of the – it gave us the knowledge evidence to support the NVQ. Um, so it, it did work out all right. Okay. Um, yeah, we've come a long way since then. We've yeah. Particularly moving to the
1: green level qualifications. Yeah, so, I think that's good. So you did anaesthetics and recovery. Uh, that was uh, obviously uh, predominantly, a lot of people do migrate to that, but it's obviously scrub. Did you do any scrub at all? You just,
3: I did you, a little bit, yeah. about six months in orthopaedics.
1: Okay. Um, so orthopaedics was the kind yeah. of area that's always been pulling your heartstrings with speciality interest. Yeah. Yeah, I
3: kind of always like that.
1: Good stuff. So you then decided to uh, move into the degree area. So wh- how did you do that?
3: Well, as it happens, I didn't do a degree in operating department practice. Okay. The degree that got me on the master's course um, is the one I had before I started my ODP training. So I did law to begin with.
1: Wow. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> And it was uh, when I was in the third year of my law degree that I realised, actually, I was studying medical law and I thought, I don't want to be in court representing patients, I want to be in the hospital looking after them. So then I found out about the ODP role and that's how come I ended up in the NHS.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. That's probably the most unique way of becoming an ODP that I've ever heard. And uh, one of the good things about Pipcast is we get to hear uh, from loads of people. But that I think that sticks out to be one of the most unique ways of becoming an ODP. Wow. Okay. Good stuff. So, all your pre-existing education held you in good stead uh, to yeah. allow you to develop. And and so clearly, orthopedics was your kind of niche area. Um, so, how did you stumble across the role of an uh, of an advanced clinical practitioner?
3: Um. Just before I started as a trainee ACP, I worked for 18 months as a clinical educator and it was while I was doing that that I heard about them developing this sort of new advanced practice role that was going to be multidisciplinary and I thought it sounded really good so I just kept an eye on NHS jobs waiting for opportunities to come up and then one came up locally so I thought wow, I'll give it a shot.
1: Well, that sounds really good. So that's funded by the NHS whilst you're doing your training?
3: Yes. Okay. And then we've got a permanent contract as well at
1: the end of it. Oh, fantastic. So there's no stress at the end that you're going to have to find a job and, and funding's going to disappear. They've they've actually dedicated themselves to fulfil the role once you've completed it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's really good. That's really good. So... So what kind of things are you covering in the course, then? So here you are in, in your trainee role, um, obviously uniquely looking at the speciality of, uh, uh, of, of orthopaedics and trauma. Um, so what kind of things are you covering? Well,
3: the master's course, it has people on it from lots of different backgrounds so we've got advanced nurse practitioners some midwives as well um people from primary care so the subjects in the actual advanced practice msc um are quite broad so we do things like advanced decision making and we had to evidence that we're meeting the four pillars of advanced practice as well recently for an assignment so that was um, clinical expertise research leadership and education okay so we had to prove that we're competent in all of those things as well um, but a big part of it as well is um, patient assessment so we had practical exams where people were watching us examine them patient you know sim- simulated patients um, got people into volunteer as patients and then we'd do an assessment and they mark us on that that was pretty scary
1: yeah goodness <laughs> me I mean <laughs> being watched while doing your clinical practice is always very nervy but in a simulation assess process it's even worse
3: yeah so that's the MSc side of things and then, yep. then competency wise the core competencies cover a range of um, medical conditions and investigations and things like interpreting blood results and um, how to manage patients with different medical conditions, everything from myocardial infarction to sepsis or depression, for example, is one of the things we have to look at.
1: Wow. So it's very, I mean, it's a, quite a, a wide range of skills to uh, to harness.
3: Yeah, because basically any of the patients on the orthopaedic ward that we see, they are acute admissions and they, Going to have any number of uh, different comorbidities, so we've got to be prepared to deal
1: with that. Wow, we so, from a clinical skills point of view, what kind of things are you being taught and will you be able to do uh, as an ACP?
3: Um, so, basic things like taking bloods and can, putting cannulas in, okay. um, male and female catheterization, yeah. insertion of NG tubes, uh, arterial blood gases, aspiration of. Knee joints as well, because we get quite a few patients with what could potentially be septic arthritis. So if they've got a hot swollen knee joint, then they would like it to be, the surgeons like it to be aspirated and they send the sample off to see if it grows anything nasty. So we're training to do that. Um, And the other thing is the fascioriliac compartment blocks as well. The majority of our patients have um, hip fractures. We see a lot of elderly patients that have fallen and broken their hip. Um, so yeah, we're trained to give them a, a compartment block
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, well that that sounds amazing I mean, so once you qualify, how will you fit into the great big engine that is the NHS uh, and how will you fit on the ward will you have time in an operating theatre, how does that work?
3: Um, yeah, we've done, alongside the masters, I've also done the surgical first assistant module um, which was six months, a different university, Okay. so that we're trained to go down and assist in theatre if necessary because there are some cases where the surgeon literally can't do the procedure without an assistant there so you know so when the registrars are busy then we go down and help the uh, help the consultants out so they can get the cases done and that's really interesting as well because you get to see the anatomy real up close and uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. No. Good to be part
3: of the theatre
1: team again. Yeah. No. Well, absolutely. It's it sounds like an exciting opportunity. Um, and so, from an entry banding point of view, as an ACP, uh, will you be a band seven or an eight? How does that work?
3: We're training on Band 7 at the moment yeah. and the idea is that once we've finished all our, once all our competences have been signed off yeah. so we have a consultant supervisor that that signs those for us yeah. so we have to get the core ones signed off and the um, specialty specific ones as well yeah. and then once we've got the OK and we've finished the Masters and the exam boards ratified all the results and everything then at that point we should go up to Band 8A that's... That's
1: what we've been told. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can live in hope, can't you? And I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you guess you're being paid out at a level because you are providing such clinical expertise, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's not a managerial point of view. It's it. You are a clinical expert, uh, and and such a useful resource from the signs of it. So that that does sound quite good. Yeah, I think one of the
3: biggest things is we provide continuity on the ward so the junior doctors that we work with i have a an f2 doctor working with me okay. but they rotate every four months right. and even when they're on their rotation is a pedics, they move between the different wards as well yeah and they cover on calls and things so so sometimes we can have a different doctor every day so the advantage of having an acp there is you know continuity of service really uh, and of
1: course you've You've picked a speciality that we all know are orthopods, and they can be quite particular about the different ways of doing things, and they can vary from consultant to consultant. So having that continuity is going to be a massive benefit for the delivery of the care for the consultant. And furthermore, the patient's just going to have a much better all-rounded experience.
3: Yeah, and the patients seem quite happy with it as well. I mean, the one thing I do do is I'm very, very clear when I go and see the patient, because we don't wear a uniform either, so we wear our own you know, or in clothes like the doctors do. Okay. Um, but I'm very careful to make sure that the patients know that I'm not a doctor, Yes. Um, but that I work with the doctors and I tell them that I'm a trainee advanced practitioner and, um, and they're happy with that. They, You know, some of them are very interested about the role and want to know what kind of things I've, I've done in my training and and stuff. So, But wow. I think that's very important.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's the ever changing workforce of the NHS, isn't it? It is gone are the days where we had doctors and Florence Nightingale, and we all kind of worked together and the doctors and nurses relationship have evolved so much now that we've got all these different in between people that are kind of the patients are learning about. And I think that's, that's, that's great what you're doing. Um, so it's good that the patients have really embraced you. And, and that's fantastic. When do you think you'll finish? What, what's the target?
3: hopefully September 2018
1: okay oh, fantastic well well hopefully you'll come back on the show and let us know how you did <laughs> when that happens and yeah. so what are the challenges that you found going into this uh, into this role as an ODP
3: I think to begin with it was explaining my ODP background um, to some of the staff on the ward as well because they they didn't really know what an ODP was was or what an ODP did and they were quite surprised some of the nursing team to suddenly find one um, <laughs> working on the orthopedic ward. Yes. Um, once, you know, once I explained the role to them, they're been really fantastic, oh, really supportive, true. especially about discharge planning, which was something I found a bit tricky. Because okay. in theatres, we don't really do much to do with discharge planning.
1: No, not at all. I, I guess we're the enabler of the discharge, but but once we've done that, we've done the job. We've done the operation itself. Uh, it, it does get kind of lost, doesn't it? And what happens after that is important.
3: And I suppose the other challenge was um, making sure the doctors understood that I was there to work with them. And i would not been employed to replace a junior doctor, but yeah. rather to support them and to work with them. Because, um, yeah, right. again, I think some of them are a bit wary with all the new roles coming out.
1: So, I mean, I, I know you're a big, um, a big champion of ODPs on social media. And, and I know there are some legal elements of odps that have kind of limited you in evolving your practice i mean can you name a few
3: yeah prescribing has been a big disadvantage really because as odps we can't access the non-medical prescribing course at the moment okay whereas our nursing colleagues can (laughs) um but i think the big thing is we need to um show how it would benefit patients to have ODPs able to prescribe and to be honest on a day-to-day basis doing the normal ODP role in theatre there probably isn't that much need for it it's more for those in advanced roles so I think possibly the best way around that is for them to regulate advanced practice and enable then all advanced practitioners to be able to access prescribing course Regardless yes.
1: of their background, I think that would work. Yeah, it it does. It it seems crazy that we've kind of got this two tier environment where, as as a profession, we have constantly grown from the days where we just move operating lights to where you are now, uh, and, and nothing stopped us from doing that. We've we've always grown, but actually, everything else seems to be miles behind us. I mean, we all remember celebrating uh, being registered with the HCPC. Um, coming off AODP, and we all remember those days and we all expected to wake up in a brand new world and we all celebrated that but then we certainly started to find that actually the legality of ODPs was lacking Uh, and it's only recently and, and it's crazy that we've only just experiencing that recently that we're now AHPs that finally the litigation and the law and the components that support us in our practice is now in a more stronger place to change, Um, and and, and even the simple processes that affect us as ODPs every day in following uh, PGDs.
3: Yeah, so I'm hoping that they've said that we were going to get PGDs eventually, and I think that will make life a lot better um, for us because, you know, they can be used in pre-assessment. We can use PGDs in recovery departments as well, giving pain relief and things. Um, So, yeah, I, I think that will... Will
1: certainly help yeah i certainly but I think this certainly is, this for is,
3: some advanced roles it's
1: tricky yeah i guess that's going to be the enabler isn't it i think once ODPs start featuring in the medicines act uh, and, and as a term of reference then we should hopefully then start to see uh, other additional drug components growing um So uh, in in the sheffield Hannam University episode, there is a piece of work going on behind the scenes that will want us to look at um, maybe ensuring that when as ODPs evolve, that we keep the title. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, maybe you could call yourself an ODP specialist uh, or or is it very much that your role is going to be an advanced clinical practitioner?
3: Yeah, I think... Because Health Education England have now, we've now got a national definition of what an advanced clinical practitioner is. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important that that abbreviation stays um, in my title because that's the role I'm doing. Yeah. But at the same, in the same breath, I still am an ODP. Yeah. Um, and that's always going to be my background um, registration. Yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah I think it's important to have both so essentially it'd be an ODP well ACP ODP or ODP ACP. <laughs>
1: yeah it, it'll be it'll be it'll be so many abbreviations it's unbelievable but uh, I mean it'd be interesting to see how things evolve Um and, and I certainly am quite excited personally but I know within Pipcast we know that the the, the title ODP is growing all the time and there's a lot of work being done by the organisations that so say represent us uh, to try and ensure that ODPs are championed um, a lot more than they have been before. Yeah. So, well, that's that's fantastic. Well, well, I mean, I think we've kind of explored your role and we've certainly seen how we have uh, got to see you evolve from when you qualified as a MVQ odp right up to where you are now what a great history what a great story i mean if people want to find out more about uh, th- your potential new role within your training where would people need to go um well
3: i'm on facebook on the um C- cpd for odp facebook page i generally comment on there quite a lot and people have sent me messages um via that or also you can follow me on twitter i've got a twitter account or if you want general information on the acp role then the health education england website that's that's pretty good um and there's quite a lot on there and there's even some videos from other acps acps from different backgrounds as well um that are available on there that are really good
1: thank you for for sharing that information because people probably have more questions uh, and more queries uh, and it would be great to have you back on the show when you get kind of to the end of your course to tell us how you did uh, and what exciting opportunities are opening for you yeah
3: that'd be fantastic thank you for
1: having me oh well uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show and again if you can like share tell all your friends about pipcast because uh, it's you the listeners that are going to make this whole podcast thing work
0: Hi, I'm Tony Jeremy, and this is Pipcast. So that was Sarah, uh, who I thought gave a really interesting interview. Uh, it sounded like she had a bit of a
1: cold. Yeah, I hope she's feeling better. Yeah. Um, it was, so the, the lead-up to the interview was a bit frantic. Yeah. Uh, my uh, my family uh, had other plans for me, yes. uh, and uh, that is life. And of course then she <laughs> uh, also was uh, in the car at the time when I first called her, so we had to resync our times yeah. and our schedules. Uh, but we managed to talk to each other, which was fine. Um, yeah, it, it, I love hearing about ODPs that have kind of breached the bubble and decided to do something else with yeah. their career. Um, some of them have gone back into the operating theatre uh, and and became something slightly different. Yeah, uh, and, and some have reached out to the wards, etc. So it was it was good to hear from her.
0: Yeah, really good to hear the opportunities that that degree is opening up for practitioners, and mm. hopefully now with the ODP course going to degree. Um, that will open up far more avenues for the, the practitioners that are coming along as well as the people who are doing top-ups. Yes. Um, I know that's not a route for everyone and, no. and there are people in practice who have maybe skipped that step to get into their advanced practice roles but it's good to know that um, with this uh, degree level coming up uh, that's going to be you know pretty much all ODPs pretty much from now on in um, it's good that that will enable us to do courses like this uh, without having to put too much extra work and time in. Um really interesting that she's combining her previous surgical skills yes. uh, as an ODP and able to bring that into her role to maybe be maybe uh, to maybe be a more useful practitioner than perhaps some of her colleagues who didn't have that experience.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it it sounds really good uh, and and I think both Craig and I said they're getting a lot for their money. Yes, aren't they? absolutely. I think what you'll be able to do to enhance the care of the patient on the ward and within theatres um, as a band seven, yeah, uh, potentially band eight. We'll yeah. see how that plays out. But um, they uh, they're getting a lot for their money, which is good. Which is good.
0: Absolutely. I mean, talking about money. I mean, we, it's it's just kind of the big green monster in the room with all the the pay rise stuff coming along. But um, that band seven to potentially a band eight role uh, for that role. I know that the big issue we have in terms of advanced roles or even similar bandings for senior practitioners is what limit is it to, to getting those, that band seven or that band eight? Because I imagine there will be advanced clear practitioners um, across the country, will be listening to Sarah's interview there and thinking, "Hold on a second, mm. I I'm a band six who's leaning onto a band seven, or I'm a band six and I'm staying a band six
1: all the way through." It's interesting that in discrepancy, isn't it, across the network of yeah. the NHS, and, and, and more so the perception that we'll have from our medical colleagues, yeah, because actually you could end up being paid a lot more, yeah, uh, than some of our registrars or ST level yeah. um, medics that might have a very different slant on your role if they feel you're being paid more. So it would be interesting to get their opinion on uh, the advancement of nursing staff into band 7 and 8 payment yeah. bands versus what they can do as registrars. Or yeah. ST.
0: I know that Adrian Jones had a had an article about that in one of the previous mm. uh, Perioperative Journal articles, uh, editorials. Um, and it is interesting how the dynamic will shift as, as people are doing more and more advanced roles. I think you're right there. It might be nice to get a few our doctoring colleagues to ask them about it and how it may be affecting their practice or improving their practice.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's good. I mean, we always think about these glass ceilings yeah. and it's nice to see people that are breaking through them into yeah. the next tier, but there is the danger that how do you distinguish the difference between the orthopaedic registrar and the uh, ACP? Yeah.
0: and I think the other thing is parity across trusts and hospitals and that's something I know I keep mentioning it, but Helen Lowes' uh, development framework hopes to essentially level the playing field so if you have certain skills so if you are in sarah's role uh, and she is getting that band seven then everyone should be getting that band seven because those are the skills you've got that is the level you have attained and therefore that is the minimum you should be getting again we're going to do a big episode on the development framework hopefully uh, you guys will agree uh, with uh, helen who has definitely convinced me in terms of uh, you know putting this development, this framework in place, and perhaps getting parity across roles and uh, and opening doors in other avenues.
1: But thank you once again, Sarah, for spending the time talking to us. That was really uh, insightful. So if you're an ODP that is branching out to other interesting roles uh, and qualifications and uh, courses, or or just have a general interest in in branching out, then get in contact with us. Um, We look forward to hearing from you. Uh, We'll do an interview with you, just a brief conversation about what you're up to, because I'm guaranteed there are everyone who's listening to Pipcast will want to know what else you can do beyond the standard ODP role but
0: not only that if you are a theatre practitioner and you love theatres I love being in theatres I love the fact that I come back from a holiday and I'm in the weirdest environment that's so far removed from you know a sunny beach that it could be uh, there, there are anaesthetic machines we're putting tubes down people we're cutting people open and sewing them back up um, that's not normal it's not a normal thing to come back to, uh, you know. It's not like you, you, you know, you you necessarily come back to an office and check up on your emails. You literally are back there uh, and straight into it. Um, and I love that. I would love to hear stories from theatre practitioners, ODPs who have stayed in theatre, whether you've done advanced roles or not, if you've maybe got an interesting thing you do as part of your theatre group whether you're a simulation uh, educator, whether you've got an advanced resus role or an airway role as part of your department whether you're just part of the Trauma, trauma on Call team, um, we would love to hear from you, we'd love to hear your stories uh, if you've got any particularly funny anecdotes obviously confidentiality approved yeah. um, we would love to hear from you
1: and a big shout-out to uh, Derryford Hospital, which, of course, is where I originally trained. They're, they are this week, uh, whilst we're recording, they're running a, a whole week-long perioperative week uh, promoting what it is. Uh, what they do within their operating theatres, um, and we have approached them to talk to us of what they did that week to give you guys some ideas of what you could do in your workplace. Uh, but uh, good luck to Derriford and, and the theatre teams there.
0: Absolutely, and on that subject, uh, Bristol Children's Hospital, if you go on their Facebook page this week, it is their theatre promotion week as well. Um, so theatre's getting a lot of love this week it's, from our respective Ho- well, my adopted home and your actual home. But yes,
1: <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. Um,
0: if you want to get in contact with us, uh, once again, our Twitter handle is at ODP Pipcast. You can go onto our Facebook page by going on Facebook and searching for Pipcast. We are the first one that comes up. Or you can email us odppipcast at gmail.com. And once again, if you want to leave us a little message on Skype, it's that same email address. You can give us a little call and when, when the arts phone comes
1: up. Just leave us a little message and we can put it on the show. And if you can, as a listener to Pipcast uh, promote us so if we post things then please do like, share, retweet whatever you need to do with regard to what platform you're on that would be great um, it, it is where we are are, are our strongest yes. within social media uh, and so having your followers uh, and having your likes and your retweets is uh, really good and thank you for the people that do that every single time we put something out there.
0: Yeah and reviews guys if you can review us uh, as much as you can it would really really good it's good to get feedback from us we can it's because of you that this show moves forward um, and we try and steer it in the directions you want it to go to. Um, yeah so in terms of Halloween episode yeah episode number 13 I think that's us done. That's done. See it. So Thank you very much, guys. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Pipcast. Take care.
2: See ya. This is Pipcast.